to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We are continuing our study here in the book of Revelation, and it's been good for us because we all have ideas about what we want the church to be. But here in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we've seen what Jesus wants his church to be. And we've been able to see that because Jesus is dictating these letters to the Apostle John, who is delivering them to seven different churches in Asia Minor. And in these letters, Jesus will commend the church for things that he likes, and so we can learn what things Jesus likes in his church. And Jesus criticizes some churches for things that they're doing that he does not like. And by listening in to the letters, we're able to see what things we need to turn from and what things we can do to make us to be a church more like Jesus wants us to be. Now, it's interesting to me. I often talk to people after they come to Redeemer Church, and I ask them, hey, you know, what are you looking for in a church? And people often say to me, well, I just want a New Testament church. We're just looking for a church like the one in the New Testament, which is always kind of funny to me because I'm always like, well, which New Testament church is it that you want? I mean, the church at Corinth, that church was messed up, right? They were filing lawsuits against each other. Uh, Their worship was so disruptive. Paul had to tell them they needed to worship decently and in order people were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. That church was a mess. Is that the New Testament church that you want or is it the Galatian church? which was leaving the gospel and embracing a form of Jewish legalism. Or the Ephesian church, we looked at earlier in Revelation chapter 2, they had lost their first love. Or the Philippian church had division that was so bad that mainly stemmed from division between these two women that, that Paul actually names by name when he writes a letter to them to be read in the sanctuary in their worship service. Or the Colossian church, there was a a heresy there in Colossians that they were battling. Or the churches here that we looked at, Pergamum and Thyatira, were not only involved in sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols, but they were teaching that it was okay to do those things. So it's always funny to me, which New Testament church do you want to be? Because the church then, as is the church today is a group of broken and messed up people. And so I take such such just comfort in the fact that the Bible is so honest about the church. The church is just the people of God. And we have not arrived. We are a people who need the word who desperately need the work of Christ in us. And so when we say, I just want a church like the New Testament church, which New Testament church is it that you want to be like? And I would submit that if you're looking at New Testament churches, this church we're going to look at today in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7, the church at Philadelphia is a church that we should want to be like. And here's the reason why. We're going to read the letter to this church, and it's interesting, Jesus has no criticism of this church. There's no correction in the letter here. You know, as we've been listening to the letters, Jesus will say something like, I know your works, and I have this against you, and he'll list something. There's no, I have this against you here in the letter to the uh, church at Philadelphia. And so this is really interesting to me. What does Jesus say to a church that doesn't have these internal struggles going on? Now, there's opposition outside the church, you'll see, and there's always going to be opposition outside to a church that is presenting the gospel to the culture. 
But what does Jesus say to a church that doesn't have these internal problems? What is it that he would have for a church like that? Because we want to be a church like that. So be listening for what Jesus says to this church. And I want to tell you that I'm going to focus the sermon around three images that are here. The image of the key of David, the image of the open door, the image of the pillar. So be listening specifically for those things as I read this letter that Jesus wrote to the church in Philadelphia, beginning in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. Hear now the words of the risen Christ. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us what you want in your church. I pray that you would show us that very clearly now, that we would see through the preaching of your word what it is you would have for your people. Now, I ask that you'd be willing to show us this even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we come to this text and we look at these three key images that are here in the text, listing for what Jesus would have for a church without these internal struggles, We've been saying in Revelation that in order to interpret this correctly, there are a couple of things we have to know. First, we have to know the history, the, the context into which this is written. And then secondly, these images, we've been interpreting by using the Scripture, right? These folks were in the synagogue. They've been kicked out of the synagogue. They have a knowledge of the Scriptures. And so we want to invest these images, not with just whatever we think they are, but what the scripture tells us they are, and we've said, if you're not taking those things into account, the cultural context, and what the scripture, how the scripture defines these images, then you're not reading this the right way. So let's read this rightly. I want to tell you a little bit about the, the history and the cultural context of this place. And then as we go through those images, we'll see other places in the scripture that help us understand what's going on here. So let's do that together a little bit about the history and the cultural context. Philadelphia, that we're talking about, is not a city in Pennsylvania, although there is such a city. This one is in present-day Turkey, okay? And interestingly, this city of Philadelphia was built, established, right close to a volcano. And you might think to yourself, why would you build your city next to a volcano that erupts fairly often? and has earthquakes and tremors in the city that had destroyed it several times. Well, the answer to that is 
the eruption of the volcano brought this rich lava that actually created a really rich soil that enabled them to grow things nobody else could grow. There was a certain kind of grape uh, that made it profitable to be there and to do business, and so they kept having to rebuild this town, but that's where they put this city of Philadelphia. And a little of what's going on here in the text that Jesus is talking about. You may or may not know this in the history of the Roman Empire. New religions were not allowed in the Roman Empire. And that's because of the turmoil and the instability that the emergence of a new religion could cause. And Judaism was tolerated in the Roman Empire because it was a very stable, ancient religion. It was predictable. So Judaism was tolerated in the Roman Empire. And, and Jewish people could sacrifice to the emperors as rulers and not as gods in order to keep the peace because that's what the Romans wanted to do throughout their empire. So at the beginning of the first century, the very earliest Christians were viewed as part of Judaism. Remember, Paul would always go to the synagogue first. And so they just thought, these Christians, that that's like a sort of a denomination, so to speak, of Judaism. And so Christians enjoyed protection for some time under that umbrella of being Jewish. But evidently, when you read here in verse 9 and verse 10, some of the people in the Jewish synagogue begin to go to the Roman authorities and say something like, hey, listen, you need to know these Christians are not Jewish, okay? They're, they're not part of our religion. They are a new religion, which you don't, and they're causing a lot of problems. They are stirring things up. And so we're kicking them out of the synagogue. Y'all need to do something about them because they're out there saying Jesus is the Messiah, which the Romans didn't care until they said they're not willing to say Jesus. They're not willing to say Caesar is Lord. They're saying Jesus is Lord, and that can cause problems for you if they're out there telling everybody that. And that led to the persecution of the Christians by Rome. So in verse 9 of the text, when Jesus says that this synagogue of folks here, he's not talking about a pagan religion, he's talking about the Jewish people there. And when he says they say they're Jews, but they're not, they lie, that means that even though they're ethnically descended from Abraham and ethnic Jews, they show they're not God's chosen people because they reject Jesus and they turn Christians into the authorities. So regardless of their ethnicity, because they oppose the people of God, they are opposing the will of God and what he is doing in the world. And as they do that, Jesus is saying that they are a synagogue carrying out the will of the devil, the evil one. And that's why he calls them a synagogue of Satan. So that's kind of what's going on here, similar to what Jesus said to some of the Jewish people that he argued with in John chapter 8, when he said, your father is the devil and you're doing his will. That's what's going on here. That's sort of the cultural context. Now let's dig in and look at some of these images. And as we do, there are three things that I want you to see. These three images are leading us to three truths. First, we're looking at the key in order to see Christ's authority. We're looking at the open door to see the church's opportunity, and then we're looking at the pillar in order to see our eternal security. So let's look at those three things together. First, Christ's authority. You see it there in verse 7. Jesus writes, these are the words of the Holy One. Now when he says that, he's claiming to be God. Okay, These folks coming out of the synagogue, Converse it in the Old Testament. Recognize Isaiah 40 and verse 25. I'm sure all of you do too since we just preached through Isaiah beginning in chapter 40. And so you hear that you say, oh wow, he's saying he's God. That's Jesus' divinity, which certainly gives him authority if he is God. 
Right? And then he says that he not only is he the holy one, he's the true one. That's in contrast to verse 9, those who lie. And this word that says he's the true one, it's usually used of God in order to show that he's trustworthy, that he's completely reliable. And then Jesus described himself like this. He's the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one can open. What's this idea about the key of David? Well, again, people who know Isaiah. You know, Isaiah chapter 22, verses 20 uh, through verse 22. That there in Isaiah, Eliakim is the palace administrator. And he's the one that either opens the door and lets folks into the household of the king, or he shuts the door and keeps people out of the household of the king. So when Jesus says that he has the key of David, Jesus is saying he has the authority to allow people into the household of God or to keep them out of the household of God. Now, why is Jesus making this point about authority? Why does he start there? Well, he starts there because of what's going on, because of the, the fear that these folks have. They're thinking in the Jewish authorities are shutting the door to the synagogue. And they're telling us we're not part of the people of God. And they're turning us out here to the Roman authorities and allowing them to persecute us and to put us in jail and to oppose us as a new religion, to persecute us. And so these folks are afraid. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm the one who has authority, so you don't have to be afraid. That it's not the rulers of the synagogue who determine if you are in the household of God. It's Jesus is the one who opens the door and nobody can shut it. Or if Jesus shuts the door, nobody can open it. And so they're not to be afraid of the Jewish authorities or even the ruling authorities. That they don't have to be afraid of what happens getting kicked out of the synagogue. Because Jesus is in control, because he's in authority. And nothing, they will face nothing that Jesus does not have authority over. That's what it means for these believers in Philadelphia. What does it mean for the believers here in the shoals? What does it mean for us? It's the same thing. It's to confront our fear. There are many of us who are afraid today. Because we don't know who the governing authorities even are. And as we think about the possibilities, that's kind of scary too. And we don't know what our future holds. And there are many of us who are afraid as we look at the the situation that we face. And Jesus says to this group of believers that he's the one in authority. That we're not going to face anything that Jesus does not have authority over. It's what Jesus said in Matthew 10, that not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father's will, and even the very hairs on your head are numbered. So you don't have to be afraid. That's what Jesus is saying here when he reminds them, when he reminds us of his authority. That's what this key of David is about. It's about Christ's authority. But secondly, I want you to see the church's opportunity. And we see that in this open door here in verse 8. You see it in verse 8. Jesus says to him, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now what's the open door? It's important that we answer that question because when we say, what is it that Jesus has for a church that doesn't have these internal struggles? What is it that Jesus gives 
to the church that is the kind of church he wants it to be. He gives this open door. Well, we want to know what that is. What is the open door? And as I read a lot of folks, man, they just talk about all kinds of things this could be. Let's just not use our own vain imaginings to, to tell what we think we want the open door to be or what we think it is. Let's let the Scripture inform us as to what that is. And if you read the Scripture, there are places that talk about this image of an open door. So let's let that shape our minds because we want to know what it is that Jesus is giving to a church that doesn't have these internal struggles. What is it? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Paul's writing, Now when I went to Troas, which is not far from this church, it's kind of to the west. So Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. He says, When I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, there's our image, the open door, and it's an open door for what? For the preaching of the gospel, for proclaiming Jesus and who he is. So that's the way Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He uses it in another place, Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. The Colossian church was nearby this church as well. It's in the same region. It's in that area of Asia Minor. And to the Colossian church, Paul writes, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door. Oh, good. What's the open door? For our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Now just notice that the open door is the proclamation of the gospel again. It's proclaiming Christ. Look what he says about it. And pray for us too. Oh, that was, we got that one. What's the next one? Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should, so it's the clear proclamation of the gospel. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. A few thoughts. Number one, the open door again is the preaching of the gospel. Paul is asking him to pray that he would walk through the door by proclaiming the gospel clearly as he should. Notice also he says pray for that. Pray for the open door. Pray that we would proclaim these things as we should. And then he calls them not just where he is but where they are. He's saying, look, you, Colossian church, make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be full of grace. Not just being that guy, being difficult, but having a gracious way that we present the gospel and move toward people, making the most of every opportunity. So let me just ask us, is that something you pray for? Is that something you even desire, something you want to see? Is that even on your radar screen? You know, he calls us here to make the most of every opportunity. I don't want to lower the standard of Scripture, but let me just ask you, do you make the most of any opportunity? For some of us, we're not even at that point. That we would be thinking, wow, every opportunity I have, I want to clearly articulate the mystery of Christ and what we have found in him. But that's the open door that God gives to churches that don't have these internal struggles. Let's keep going. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning in verse 7. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. He says, For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus, which, by the way, is in Turkey. Remember, that's one of the churches that we've already looked at. So he's in the region here. I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Listen to why he's going to stay in Ephesus. 
For a wide door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Okay, so the door is for effective work. And notice that he has adversaries. There are people opposing him. Just because there are adversaries does not mean that Jesus has not opened a door, right? The church in Philadelphia, he's put an open door before them, and there's this external opposition. Here for Paul, the same thing, right? In Ephesus, God has opened the door for effective ministry, but there are just because there are adversaries, external does not mean that there's not an open door, all right? Okay. So here's the question. What does Paul do in Ephesus? If there's an open door there, and God's given him that open door, if we can look and see what Paul did in Ephesus, then we can know what we're supposed to do with the open door, right? And the Scripture tells us. In Acts chapter 19, read that whole chapter. It's about Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And it'll tell you that he goes there. There are people interested in the gospel. He shares the gospel with them. He baptizes them. And then this happens. He, that's Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some of them became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, that's another way to refer to Christianity, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, and this continued for two years. A few thoughts about that. Number one, two years for Paul is an eternity. <laughs> he never stayed any place that long, okay? He would go to a place, he would preach the gospel, he would get converts. As soon as he could appoint elders over the church, he would leave and go someplace else and leave. Now he would go back and visit, he would write to them to encourage them, but Paul never stayed any place for two years that we have a record of. So this open door, he invests some time here. And what does he do here when the door is open? Now this is why this is so applicable to our situation. All right, Do you hear what he did? He went into the synagogue and was teaching, and then they begin to get mad at him, and they kick him out. That's the exact situation these people were facing in Philadelphia, right? They had been in the synagogue, and they've had the door shut in their faces, and they're being pushed out in the street saying, you're not part of this religion. You're something different and altogether new. So when we look at the ministry of Paul in Acts 19, I think this, we're, we're on to some, what the open door is, okay? We're on to something. It's always the, the proclamation of the gospel, preaching the gospel, and then what Paul did in Ephesus, baptizing people who profess faith, and then staying there and teaching them, which Paul did for two years in this place. That's the open door sharing the good news of the gospel, taking disciples, spending time and teaching them. That's what the New Testament church is supposed to be. A New Testament church that's not bickering with one another, that's not caught up in false teaching. A healthy church that Jesus, the kind of church Jesus wants this church to be, is a church that does those things. He gives them an open door for evangelism, for discipleship. What does that mean here for us? Well, I want you to know that during the quarantine, I feel like our leaders did a really good job of staying connected, of staying engaged. 
And we said, listen, there are very few times that you get to just shut down all your programs and evaluate them and then kick things off again, maybe the way they should have been from the very beginning. And our elders took time to do that. Our officers took time to read the scripture, to read some articles and some books together, to pray together, to talk about what the ministry should look like in this place. And I'm telling you, what this is describing is so similar to what we came up with. I texted the elders this week and just said, I just have such a conviction and a confirmation that what we've been talking about is exactly what Jesus wants his church to be. Because I see it here in Revelation chapter 7. This is what a New Testament church is supposed to look like. This is what God in his word calls the church to be. And this is what your leadership wants this church to be. Now, what's it going to look like here at Redeemer? You've seen it look like this. It's discipleship continuum. That we would have seen non-Christians become new Christians or young Christians. We want to see young Christians become growing Christians. We want to see growing Christians become mature Christians. And then some of those mature Christians become leaders or even ordained leaders. And that's the continuum, that's the maturity in Christ that we've been talking about and defining each one of those things. And how do we know when you get from one to the other? And then how does that happen? Well, we're going to have to learn to do evangelism. We had an evangelism conference in February, and then the world changed in March. We're going to have to figure out how to do evangelism differently now. We've got the Redeemer 101 class that really talks about our church and and what signing up for this means and what it looks like to, to walk with Christ in this place. Young Christians to growing Christians, we have this walking your path class. It helps us to learn, to pray, and to be in the Word every day, and why it's important to attend on Sunday, and why you should take time to be in some kind of a small group, and why you should have a personal ministry, and how to do conflict resolution in the church. And then growing Christians, we want folks to be in a community group, or a discipleship group, or a men's or a women's Bible study to help us grow toward maturity. I want to say a word about that walking your path class. Because some people have looked at that and said, well, I'm not a new Christian. I'm not a young Christian. I'm just waiting until community groups start in January. Man, I'm so glad you're excited about community groups and you want to get back together. Uh, We're planning that. We're looking forward to that. We're trying to put that together. But I want you to know that the walking your path class changes the way we do community groups. We're not having community groups. No, we're having community groups. But we want to learn to talk in those terms. We want to learn to talk in terms of how's your path? Do you pray every day? Do you use those things that we learned in walking your path? Are you reading the scripture? Are you doing it in the way that we talked about? We want to use that vocabulary. We want to use that language. In some ways, we just want to change the culture here. And that walking your path class changes the way our shepherding looks. It changes the way community groups talk to one another. So if you haven't been here, please... Go online under classes, right? RedeemerShoals.com slash walking your path. And you can watch each one of those. They have the handouts there as a PDF. All those things are online, and I hope you'll make that a priority. Because as you look at this, this is what I believe the Bible calls a New Testament church to be. And your leadership is very committed to this. And we want you to be committed to this as well. So pray about our church doing this and going through this process. Pray about where you are on this continuum. Where would you fit in? What would be the next step for you? How can you grow and become more the person Jesus wants you to be? 
And maybe if you're honest, where your heart is right now is, you know, I'm just not even sure that's what I want in a church. <laughs> if I'm listing what I want, you know, evangelism and discipleship and, and discipleship continuums, that's not, a, that's not a big thing that I would want. You know, I'm looking for something that's got a gym or a coffee shop. Well, listen, I would ask you to pray that your heart would change. Because all of our ministries are going to look like this kids' ministry, youth ministry, is going to be influenced by this. Because this is what Jesus describes the New Testament church to be. And it's been our prayer that we would become more and more like this as a church. That's the open door that Jesus gives to his church. Third thing, our eternal security, this image of the pillar. You see it there in verse 12. Jesus says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. You need to know a little bit of the history to understand this. At the time this was written, the way that the city would reward someone who had served well is they gave them a memorial and they would erect a pillar to them with their name inscribed. And interestingly, it also inscribed the name of their father there, I guess under the assumption that, that this household produced this person who did great things and who was instrumental in the life of the city. And so they erect a pillar and they engrave the person's name and their father's name so that all who see it might remember this person and what they've done. And so what Jesus is saying to this church is that those who are faithful to him, they may not be honored with a pillar there in the city of Philadelphia, but they would be honored by Jesus in the only way that lasts forever. Now, why would I say that? Well, let me ask you this. Would you rather have a pillar in your name on it, in the heavenly Jerusalem that lasts for eternity, or in the city of Philadelphia here in Asia Minor, that is destroyed by earthquakes and volcanoes every few years, right? They had rebuilt this city lots of times. Pillars erected to people come down all the time. And so what Jesus is saying is, I will give you a memorial in a place that will last forever, that will not be, whose foundations won't be shaken. This language about never will you have to go out, do you see that? Never shall he go out of it. You need to understand how the people would hear that. What have they done their whole lives? Volcanoes erupt again. We've got to get all of our stuff and go out of the city to safety. Then when it's over, they come back in. Earthquake, we're going to go out of the city. Then we go back every few years. They pack up their stuff and leave. And so when Jesus says, I'm going to give you a memorial in a place that you never have to go out of, and these people are like, yes, that's what I long for. That's what I hope for, something real, something eternal. You see, in order to be a pillar in the life to come, we have to be a pilgrim in this life, one who's willing to go out and to go in, one who's willing to live with some discomfort, one who's willing to face some external opposition. That's the eternal security that Jesus promises is an eternity with him, that we will be with God forever. I just want to close with this thought. I, I really struggled with this passage this week, trying to figure out exactly what these images meant. 
I always take it very seriously. I don't want to get up here and teach something that is not true. It's like, I think that's what this is. And the Lord just really gave me some confirmation this week. We're going we're gonna to have the Great Commission, Jesus charged to his followers in Matthew 28, as our benediction. But before we do, I want, you to see the, I want you to see that Great Commission. I want you to look at it right next to what we just talked about. Okay, so if you'll put Matthew 28 up there, look what, look what Jesus said. Then Jesus said, remember he's about to ascend into heaven. The risen Christ is leaving his followers who are just like these folks. There aren't very many of them. They don't have a lot of power. They don't have a lot of money. And Jesus says, all authority in heaven or on earth has been given to me. Now what's the first thing he said to the people in Philadelphia? I'm the holy one, the true one, the one with the key. I have authority. It's exactly, the, the shape of what he says here is exactly what he says to this church. What does he say next? Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the, Son, in the, name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's the open door. <laughs> That's the opportunity that he gives to the church that flows from his authority. That, that's the second thing that he says. And then what's the last thing he says? And surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. <laughs> that's their eternal security. That he's always with them. That in this world they're always going out and coming in, but a day is coming that they're going to be in the city of God. Permanently. Not going out. Not going in. As I look at this text, it's, it, it's just the Great Commission. It just follows the pattern and the flow of thought exactly. One of them is very explicit. The other was written in images that Jesus is giving to this church that is under attack from the outside. But the message is the same. Whether it's those disciples on the Mount of Olives before he ascends, or this church in Philadelphia, or this church in the Shoals area of Alabama, Jesus has the same message. Don't be afraid because he's in authority. Walk through the open door. Be dedicated to seeing other men and women come to a saving faith in Christ. And that he's with us. That's our security. He'll never leave us or forsake us and we'll always be with him. Let's pray and ask God to do that in this place. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for saying it in different ways so that we can hear it. Sometimes very explicitly, sometimes in these images, in the, in the context of real time and space history. And I just pray as your people that we would not be gripped by fear. That even though we are small, even though we don't have a lot of power or a lot of resources, that just like these people, you would use us to change the world. And I pray that as we do that, we'd be willing to walk through that open door, and we do so because you are with us, because we have eternal security, because you never leave us or forsake us. Please come and use us in this way. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.